So if you've been following along, and I know you have been, if you're listening to this show, Danielle Smith campaigned and won on a platform made up in large part of what has been called the Sovereignty Act, a declaration of provincial autonomy, right? Well, Saskatchewan Premier, as you know, put out a policy paper uh, saying a lot of the same things, talking about provincial rights. Of course, they're not alone. This has uh, gone on before. There are others pretty continuous in Quebec, but um, the latest flight, maybe maybe Daniel Smith has pushed it into a new area with some of the things that were in the Sovereignty Act and might not be anymore. We're not sure what it's going to look like, but uh, it's raised the question of how confederation functions. Our national unity has been called into question in some cases. Provincial rights, all the rest of it. So uh, to have a conversation about that, we're going to chat with James Forbes, who is a postdoctoral fellow in history at the University of Saskatchewan. James, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us today. Thanks for having me, Shay. So, as I said, you know, Danielle Smith, probably the most vocal critic recently of provincial federal relations, but but as I said, she's not alone, right? I mean, there's a long history of this, and she's not the only one currently either. Absolutely. And uh, one thing that Canadians often forget is, in many ways, our system was designed to accommodate regional differences. Since this is such a vast country with, um, you know, a vast geography, there's a lot of different you know, differences across different regions of the country. And so one of the ways that the Fathers of Confederation addressed this was to have strong provincial powers built into our Constitution. And that's sort of the way that works. So let's go into the history of this and how it is sort of built in uh, to the way that this country operates. Um, the, the country literally was created with an eye to this very issue, right? This was a primary consideration by the founders. Even before Confederation, this was an issue. That's right. And, you know, one sort of episode in Canadian history that often gets forgotten is just those couple of decades before Confederation, uh, there was um, an entity called the Province of Canada. This was a union of uh, Upper Canada, which is now Ontario, and Lower Canada, which is now Quebec, and they became the United Province of Canada. And this was from 1841 to 1867. And this was sort of a forced marriage. And it failed for a number of reasons. But one of the main reasons that it failed is because it failed to accommodate these differences across those two regions. Um, they had one shared legislature, which made it a fairly centralized union, which meant that even though they could make laws that affected only one region or the other, they still had to get all of their legislation passed through the same legislature, which led to all sorts of disagreements. Um, it was hard to find consensus on a lot of the key issues, such as education, health care. And for that reason, because of these experiences during this Union of the Canada's, from 1841 to 1867, uh, those issues like healthcare and um, and education were assigned to the provinces. When the uh, you know by the time the founders, uh, the fathers of confederation, were designing confederation, they realized they needed a separation of levels of power so that they could have some of these more divisive issues handled at a more local level. Right, and in that way. They could have, you know, more agreement on the issues that they could agree on. So like you say, that happened, you know, around 1840 to 1867. So when we get to 1867 and Confederation takes place, that consideration carries over. That's that's a primary consideration in sort of how are we going to bring this Confederation to life and, and what's it going to look like? That balance, that tricky, tricky balance was part of the conversation way back when, right? Exactly. So there were a couple of major conferences that, you know, people from all over the British North American colonies, they all come together, they're having this discussion of, you know, what is this new country going to look like? And um, most people coming to those conferences were interested in preserving 
their own local interests. Um, this is something that has changed in the way that historians have understood confederation. Um, in, in days gone by, there was a more nationalist narrative saying that confederation was a nation-building project. Um, and they really emphasized you know, one side of the story, which came from people like John and McDonald and his supporters, who did want a more centralized union. But there were a lot of other representatives at those confederation conferences who said, you know, we're not just here to give power to Ottawa. We're here to make sure that, yes, we can be part of this union. We can have the advantages of working together on areas that we can agree on. But we also want to make sure that our local interests are preserved. And that's why provincial powers were so important to getting this union right. And people like George Brown, were, uh, who, who was the liberal leader in Ontario at the time, uh, you know, they were the champions of, of provincial rights within Confederation. And in fact, there's a great quote um, that, uh, that George Brown, you know, gave in an 1865 speech. He said, the questions that used to excite the most hostile feelings among us have been taken away from the general legislature, federal, and placed under the control of the local bodies, meaning provincial. So for him, this was, this was key, was to make sure that in order to preserve national unity, we have to make sure that we devolve a lot of the divisive issues to the provinces to make sure that they can deal with things the way that suits their citizens most. And the U.S. calls their constitution a living, breathing document. And it, I think there's some parallels here in terms of this push and pull and this debate and this argument over who gets what and where that line is drawn, that changes over time. But again, that's that's sort of the way it's designed. This is part of the process, right? There are negotiations, there are talks, and, and things are, are, are come to an, we come to an agreement through a process. It's not set in stone. Absolutely. And, and of course, there have been so many court challenges over the years, even in the 19th century. There were court challenges that um, you know, made sure that, that certain jurisdictions weren't, you know, they weren't stepping on each other's toes. And it's, it is quite a process. But we can still learn from their experiences yeah. in the 19th century and say, you know, what mistakes were they learning from? And how can we make sure that we, um, you know, build upon those lessons for today? So what we're seeing right now with uh, the Sovereignty Act in Alberta, you're in Saskatchewan, Scott Moe with the policy paper that he released, Francois Legault with exerting all kinds of different... Um, is it normal? Are we outside of the, the guardrails that we've always functioned in? Or are we just fine? This is how the process is supposed to work, and we'll, we'll see where we get to at the end, but there's no need to get too carried away with it? I think this is, this is fairly par for the course. Um, you know, people often, maybe for partisan reasons, you know, try to act like the sky is falling. And yeah, there, there are ways that it can go too far, of course. So we'll be, we'll be watching closely to see what, what the text of the legislation is with things like the Alberta Sovereignty Act to see if it does respect those jurisdictional boundaries and if it does respect that balance of federal and provincial powers that it has been key to, um, to maintaining unity in our country. Um, but, you know, I would encourage people to understand, you know, what were some of these principles that we've had since the 19th century that have made this country work so, so far? And one of those principles is respecting regional differences. Um, so, yeah, we will watch it closely, of course. Uh, you know, scholars across the country and, of course, citizens are going to keep their close eye on a lot of legislation coming down. And certainly the courts are going to have something to say about it. Uh, but I do think, you know, as long as it respects um, you know, some of that delicate balance, I think there is room for that. There is some room for provinces to say, you know, we do things a little bit differently from how they want us to do it in Ottawa. And to some extent, 
you know, that's how our system is supposed to work. Yeah, so we'll work with the process and see where we end up. Uh, Great conversation, James. Thanks so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Shay. Yeah, you bet. That's James Forbes, who is a postdoctoral fellow in history at the University of Saskatchewan. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.